Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to disembowelment, decapitation, suicide, and interfering with corpses. It also contains bad language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Hi, I'm Hannah, a PhD student studying women's anti-nuclear activism, and I have other interesting things about myself to say. But you talk I... about guinea pig balls a lot. Well, look, my guinea pigs are growing boys now. Oh my god, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Your poor guinea pigs. <laughs> and I'm Nicola, I don't have guinea pigs with testicles, I don't have guinea pigs at all, and I am a teacher in training and a part-time historian who wrote this at one in the morning last night. On brand for you. Very on brand for yeah. Nicola. Yeah. It's like the first time I've done this for this podcast. Like yeah. every other time I've been like, no, this is finished up. It's ready to go. And now like it's three just weeks like, ah! <laughs> We got there. It's fine. We got there. We did it. Welcome to Women of War, a podcast where we talk about women and the myriad ways they've been involved in conflicts and wars throughout history. Throughout history. But we have a website, womenofwarpod.com. We have socials at Women of War Pod for Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we have a newsletter. Go to womenofwarpod.com forward slash subscribe and come learn about Ooh, all the damn. fun facts. Thank you. I'm not even looking at the script right I now. I know you're not. And um, if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that's super sexy. Thank you. All right. So to business, Nicola. Where are we off to? We're off to 1860s Japan. Japan is an island by the sea filled with volcanoes and it's beautiful. Last time we went to Japan, it was for our third episode about Iva Toguri di Aquino in World War II, a very treasonous, very international story that one was. Uh, Japan in the 1860s is sort of the origin story for what Japan eventually did during World War II, which weren't very nice things. Then nice things didn't happen to them either. Um, it's a, just a whole ball of not niceness all the way down. It's funny how war is like that. Yeah. Um, and um, this is what made the nation into an international power and the empire of the Pacific. It is the This episode is the Iron Man to the internal workings of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it's also the original X-Men trilogy to the external conceptualization of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And who's the Hulk in this situation? Eric Banner. Okay. 1860s Japan. So just after the arrival of Matthew Perry, but uh... not that Matthew Perry... And the forced opening of Japan to the rest of the world, which led to the rise of Japan as an industrial, economic and military superpower. And it didn't end badly for anyone in the Pacific Islands, China, Korea or Japan itself. Not at all. So in this episode, we're going to do a massive macro-wide shot of Japanese history and then zoom in some more and then zoom out again and then zoom in on one person and her group of pals who are gals. Not like that. Nakano Takeko, a female samurai who led a group of female samurai in the Boshin War. Apologies, Japan, we have tried our best with pronunciations, but the only Japanese I know is Konnichiwa, Sayonara, and Neon Genesis Evangelion. I know the word for panda. Panda. Pandas aren't even Japanese. The Boshin War was fought between the Tokugawa shogunate, who were in power at the time with the samurai, against, the no- against those who wished to return power to the emperor and the imperial court. It is often referred to as the Japanese Civil War. And unusually for a civil war, it was relatively civil. Mm. Its vague contemporary war, the American Civil War, saw up to a million people die, including over 80,000 enslaved people. While the Boshin War was nice and quick and tidy, and the general consensus is that less than 9,000 people all up died, both in battles and acts of terrorism. 
it's a fun fact. Like, you can be like, so which war, you know, was the where the most Americans died? And everyone's like, oh my God, World War II. And the like, American, American Civil, Civil War. Because everyone who died. Also, it fucks me out real bad. We have footage of like American Civil War veterans in like mm. the World War One era. Like, they weren't fighting. It was just like the same era. And they were like, crusty by then. They were very crusty. Still very racist. Um... So the American Civil War did go for four years, while the Boshan War only went for about one. But if you divide up the American death toll into four, you're still left with 250,000 people dying a year. So well done, Japan. In addition to your famously efficient train network, you have wonderfully efficient civil wars. And well done, Americans, because you're very good at slaughtering each other. And come 1945, slaughtering the Japanese. And (sighs) That got real dark. I'm sorry I made you say that. Why would you do this to me? Let's. Let's just let's go back in time a little this bit. This is a big, big macro wide shot. Zoom, 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 zoom. After people arrived at the islands of what we now call Japan, including people from modern Korea and modern Siberia, and in the latter case, both by foot and by boat, for a long time Japan was separated into little local areas like villages, often centralized around rice farms or farming and rearing Pokemon. Nicola, you made me say all those Hamilton things last time. I did. Yes, I did. Yes. Continue. Okay. They'd also fight and take each other's territory. It's basically early Europe, but Japan. One of these clans included the Yamoto from near modern Osaka. They were a sunny bunch who loved tanning and getting vitamin D, so they also worshipped Amaratsu, who is the Shinto goddess of the sun. In 400 AD, the Yamato, Yamoto had, through war and trade, become the most powerful clan. Hooray! The ruler of the Yamoto was declared the ruler of Japan and said to be a rel- relative of Amaratsu herself. Amaterasu? Amaterasu. I've missed a T there. Oh, I keep going. A relative of Amaterasu herself. They gave this guy a cool name. That name was Emperor. May he last a thousand years. May he last a thousand years. The Yamoto were keen bringing over, ide- over ideas of writing and Buddhism from Korea and China and stole and then used Chinese writing symbols to develop their own kanji. In the 600s, the Japanese also imported Confucianism because you need a varied religious diet. In the 500s, the Soga, another clan, took over Japan and made Buddhism the official religion. People didn't like this, and by the 600s, this dude named Nakano Oe was emperor, who inherited the role from his mum, Empress Saimai. Samei? Samai. I'm so sorry, Japan. Um, I may be talking about my ass here, but the imperial Japanese had more female rulers and regents than most of the European empires and China, and as far as I can tell, Korea as well. So it's not like a feminist, like, yes, queen, like, thing. It's just, like, interesting to, like, see a lot, like, a relatively high amount of women's names. Mm. And it doesn't mean, like, it's like a yes, queen feminism thing. It's just, like, interesting. Like, I wonder. A fact. Like, are there, like, strong female deities in Shintoism that made them more okay with this idea? Yeah. interesting. Or, like, I guess pre-Christianity, you've got. You haven't got Adam and Eve and, you know, yeah. first original sin I and all that I love how Japanese people treat Christianity. It's like um, the way a lot of white people treat Buddhism here. Like, let's just take some cool symbols. Fabulous. So, yeah. so Nakano Oye takes over in a way we can't go into because of politics, and that ended the Soga's rule over Japan. So Nakano Oe, is that right? I think so. Nakano Oe was renamed once he became emperor and became known as Emperor Tenji. May he last a thousand years. May he last a thousand years. Tenji said about modernising Japan, which people love to do. He centralised the government, copying China, and he declared that all land belonged to the emperor. That's so handy for him. (laughs) And also, the emperor was the divine leader of Japan, which is also super handy for him. I like where his thinking is going. It's so convenient. Yeah. As time went on, various clans took and lost power over each other and the country as a whole. From 750-ish, the Fujiwara clan, which Tenji himself had created for a friend. I love that. Here, have a clan. You've never given me a clan. I don't like you that much. That's why. (laughs) So the Fujiwara clan dominated Japan. 
By the 1100s, though, the Fujiwara were wobbling, and there was also a lot of regional fighting and civil unrest between the feudal landholders and their clans. With the pressure to protect their people and their land, some of the feudal lords, also known as Daimo, Daimo? Daimyo? 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 Also known as Daimyo, sorry Japan, hired elite warriors from the noble class to help out. Likely early pre-Yamoto times, various regional rulers were having smackdowns until the Minamoto clan took control with the assistance of their very clever and skilled military leader, Minamoto Yoritomo. Minamoto Yoritomo was vaguely descended from the emperor on his father's side, but this is probably like a European royalty situation where everybody in the nobility is kind of distant cousins with everybody else. And they've, all and they've got the same <laughs> nose and they're missing some chins. And then they like are really racist to vegan yeah. Marco. Yeah. yeah. Minamoto Yoritomo installed the 82nd emperor of Japan on the throne. A guy called Gotoba, but Go means two or the second, so he's more like Emperor Toba the second. So though Gotoba was emperor, this wasn't like the emperors of old. Gotoba was merely a figurehead of the government, while Minamoto Yoritomo installed himself as the imperial general, a.k.a. the shogun. Soon, Japan's provinces were governed by soldiers appointed by the shogun. This might seem a tad cooey, and it is. Love a good coup. Though the emperor was the nominal head of Japan, the shogun was the neck and could make the head turn any way it wanted. Japan flourished under the stability brought by the shogun and his lo- loyal soldiers, and these soldiers were also called samurai. We'll get to them in a bit. This nice period of time lasted until it didn't, and local warlords began to develop their own military forces and break away from the shogun. By 1450, everyone was on their way back to fighting each other and was still fighting with each other when in 1543, knock knock, port city of Kyushu, it's the Portuguese. They bought guns and Jesus! And by 1593, not only were all the Japanese clans fighting each other with guns, something even worse had happened. 150,000 Japanese people had become Christians. In 1600, Tokugawa Iyasu had managed to get the best army and best tactics together and declared himself ruler. By the way, Japan still had an emperor, Goyotsei, who was just chilling. Tokugawa Iyasu. He's just in the corner like, sup. Hey, guys. Have fun over there. I'm just watching my anime. I'm writing some haikus. Um, uh, by the way, so yeah, Japan still had an emperor who was just chilling. Tokugawa Iyasu established the Tokugawa shogunate who would rule Japan for the next 250-ish years. Ding, ding. The Tokugawa shogunate quickly established a strict class system, brought in firearm controls. Hooray! Always a good thing. Hey, America. And banned most foreigners from entering Japan and all Japanese people from leaving. This had two effects. One, it meant Tokugawa control over the country was pretty complete. And two, the economy then exploded because people were busy doing things that didn't involve killing each other. Like making more people. The shogunate was in decline by 1853, but holding on by the tips of their tippy-tip fingers... And then in 1858, the United States arrived. The Perry Expedition, led by friend star Matthew Perry, had been sent to Japan with the goal of opening contact and trade with Japan. Open the country, they said. Stop having it be closed. I love that you don't know the context of that quote, because it's beautiful how you just said that. Okay, good. What's the context of the quote? I'll tell you later. Okay. There were big ass guns on the American ships, so the Japanese signed a trade agreement with the United States, and in return, the Americans showed them some of their industrial capabilities, including steam engines, telegraphs, and whiskey. The Japanese showed off some art, but also turns out Matthew Perry loved collecting seashells, so they also gave him some shells. Could he have any more shells? Thank you. I'm here all week. As you can take from this exchange, the Japanese were definitely on the back foot when it came to what they could exchange with the Americans. And also on the back foot in terms of the treaty they signed with Perry. It was weighted greatly in favour of the Yanks, subsequently shaming the Japanese when they learned of this. That was so badly phrased. I'm so sorry. 
This was the beginning of the end for the Tokugawa shogunate. You can only rule over people with absolute power when they have nowhere to go and no way to fight back. With foreign trade now permitted, because the Americans had forced it, ideas flowed in and out of Japan along with people, technology, and money. Lots of money. Ding, ding. The arrival of Perry and the unequal treaty between the nations just showed how weak the Tokugawa actually were. So let's back up and zoom in again somewhere else. Who were the samurai? Hannah, please give us your impressions of what the samurai were as if you knew nothing. This is a trap and I will not fall into it. The samurai were the warriors of the elite class. They were private soldiers to a lot of the daimyo beginning in the 1100s, as we mentioned earlier. Their practices and codes of ethics developed from there. The samurai began as more or less mercenaries, noble fighting men for hire who had worked to protect clans and their land for a price, or because they were loyal to that clan through bloodlines. They developed a set of ideas called the Bushido, which em- emphasised suicidal loyalty to the clan. Samurai trained in hand-to-hand combat, including martial arts and sword fighting, and also archery, which is only hand-to-hand if you're very bad at it. They practiced Buddhism and wore cool armour. Also, most famously, if a samurai felt he had shamed his clan, he should kill himself by committing harakiri or seppuku, aka cutting their stomachs open. They could also do this as a form of protest or grief, say, if the emperor died. The samurai had almost 700 years of power in Japan before they were brought down. So, now, important for the podcast, what role could women play with regards to the samurai? Well, though women weren't usually allowed to become samurai, bushi women, which was the same class that produced samurai men, could, and were trained in the use of weapons in the times of crisis or to protect their home. So, by no means were the samurai running around in gender-blended brigades, but across time from the 1100s to the end of the 1800s, there were female women trained as samurai. Female women? I'm leaving that in there. <laughs> not in like a not in like an exclusionary way. Just like female women, not those. <laughs> Just in the English is hard to write at one a.m. way. This wasn't written at one a.m. This was written at like twelve. Oh no, you have no excuse. Female samurai are usually referred to as onabugeisha, which combines the words for woman and warrior, or onamusha, which is the same combo but different. I don't speak Japanese, as you probably figured <laughs> out by now. Onobugeisha learnt to use swords and martial arts, but key to their training was a naginta. Naginata. Naginata. But key to their training was a naginata. A naginata is a variety of a group of Japanese bladed weapons called the nihonhonto, nihonto, which are like what we would call pole arms, long sticks with a blade on top. The naginata is most clearly now associated with the onobugeisha. Because it's quite long, the naginata compensates for the size difference a woman would see fighting against male opponents. Onabugeisha, as we said, were hanging around from as far back as the 1100s, the origin of the origin period of male samurai, the samurai story. in general. <laughs> Mythical figure Tomo Gozen appears in stories about her and her cousin fighting with the Minamoto clan to prevent the rise of Minamoto no Yoritomo, who would install himself as the first shogun. She might not be a real person, but her legend received a great deal of attention and she served to further inspire the creation of more Onabugeisha and even Naginata schools, even today. Cool. Girls in Japan and even boys still do learn um, like martial arts and naginata and stuff. That's fabulous. Yeah. I would like to do that. In the late 1100s and early 1200s, a real onobugeisha, Hangaku Gotsen, was also active and she ended up commanding 3,000 soldiers against 10,000 from a rival clan. She held them off for quite a while until she was wounded and their defense collapsed. She did survive this injury and ended up marrying a fellow warrior. 
So though these women are kind of rare, they're definitely present throughout feudal Japanese history and there was no Mulan-style annexation and decapitation of women joining some forces here. There were also a few women-only units throughout history, including one in the 1500s, where Aikida Sen led 200 female musketeers because by this point the Europeans had dropped off firearm technology. Very generous of them. Guns were also held to be a samurai weapon, but Aikida Sen was unusual in training anyone to use them, let alone female samurai. So we're saving her for a later episode, so... Jot that down in your diaries. Put a pin in her. Get excited. probably don't because she'll shoot you. Samurai women were held to similar standards as the men of their class. They were well educated in politics, martial arts, and diplomacy. Though they seemed relatively liberated, remember it is also a question of class. So the samurai class was posh. You wouldn't expect a Japanese peasant woman to know or be able to do the same things as an onobu geisha. Like, ditto European women at the same time. Some wealthy women might have been literate and trained in aspects of diplomacy, but the average peasant lady would have more pressing things to worry about, like crop rotation and whether the pig was going to birth piglets. Female samurai also had their own practice of seppuku, which was a little different than the male form of seppuku and involved them cutting their own throats. They also tied their legs together so they'd be found in a dignified pose, but there were also some very odd expectations of dignity around men committing seppuku, so that's not really a thing about them being women. It's just the way you commit suicide. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine, like, if you're more likely to be wearing, like, open dress type clothing, then that's something you consider. Yeah, but, like, the men also had, if they were going to kill themselves, they had to, like, write a poem and, like... Yeah. Do some random shit. I mean, like, it's just, like I'm saying, it's a practical consideration. Yeah. Pr- yeah. yeah. Um, like, either- nobody wants to be found dead with your legs open and your genitals. Yeah. When they hang the women, actually, in um, Elizabethan England, they would tie their dress down around their ankles. Because mm. you might be hanging someone in front of a crowd of people, but you don't want to see your ankles. Anyway, so um, there were outliers in cases of, like, nobles committing suicide. One wife of a noble, but she probably wasn't an onobagasha. She put a bell over her head and walked into a pond where she drowned after her husband lost a battle. Look, tragic. But, but the funny. image, it, there was hilarious. A, there was a picture in the book, and I was like, "It's a very nice bell." I will say, like it's 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 sad. It's very sad. But I love this it's image. Kind of, like I'm gonna kill myself. There's all these weapons. I'm gonna put a bell on my head and walk into a lake. Yeah. So, um, Onabagesha were also still expected to mostly be present in the home and take care of domestic issues while the men went off and put down uprisings or did their eyebrows. Usually, it was only in times of pure crisis that they would rise, their arms shimmering in the purest samite, holding aloft their naginata. What on when earth they're... are you talking about? Okay. So, women also weren't allowed to be clan leaders, um, in general, but this rule was bent and occasionally broken. Some female samurai did become the heads of their clans. And now I think we can come to the crux of this episode and the focus. The Holy Grail, but only for a hot minute. Nakana Takeko. Nakana Takeko, and I probably should say, have said this earlier, her first name is Takeko, the family name is Nakano, was born in April 1847 to the noble Nakano family. She was the first daughter of Nakano Koko, who herself was the daughter of of a samurai, and her husband Nakano Hinai, a samurai and a high-ranking official of the Eizu Domain under the Tokugawa Shogunate. The Eizu Domain was one of the most committed and loyal domains to the Shogunate, through both economic alliances and kinship ties. The Eizu Domain even had a fortified castle of their own, known as Crane Castle, or... Oh boy, Eizu Wakamatsu Otsuraga, but for obvious reasons we're going to call that one Crane Castle. Put a pin in that. Eizu Domain, big-time shogun buddies, and their muscle in the northern regions of Japan. Put another pin in that. I'm getting lost with how many pins we've got. Okay, there's two pins we need to remember. Eizu Domain is the big-time shogun buddies and their muscle. Yep. And they have a nice castle called Crane Castle. Lovely. Castle. Excellent. Castle? 
Castle. I I interchange. Yeah. I people am not consistent. Give me shit for it. I say castle. I say castle. Yeah, I castle. don't know. I don't know why. There's there's no reasoning behind it. It's because I don't want to sound like a Sydney cider. It's like a mood. Why. It's my mood. It's the vibe. Is it a castle mood? It's the vibe. Is it a castle mood? It's the vibe. Anyway, um, AC Domain, Shogun Buddies, Crane Castle, Castle, Japanese style castle, not a European style castle. All right. The leader of the Azu was Matsudaira Katamori. Don't worry about pinning that. So back to Takeko. Nakano Takiko began her training in 1853 at the age of six. Takiko was described as quite attractive and well-educated, as was befitting her status as the eldest daughter of a noble family. Nicola, stop playing with your hair. Samurai received a well-rounded education, not only in martial arts, but also calligraphy and literature. Takiko loved to read, especially stories of Japanese female warriors, generals, and imperial leaders. She was noted to be quite taken with the story of Tomo Hosen, one of the first female mythical samurai that we mentioned earlier. Takiko was good at samuraiing, which I don't know if that's a word, Nicola, but I'll allow it. It is now. Okay. As of the samurai, the samurai of her domain were especially good at samuraiing. The Aizu domain... (laughs) The Aizu domain were known for giving their female samurai in-depth and elaborate training, as well as indoctrinating them into samurai beliefs, um, which was the same for male samurai. They were told again and again that their duty was to protect their domain, then their lord, and then their families. Families should be higher on the list, I feel. It's like, because your domain and your lord is your family, I think, as well. And, like, if you can't protect the domain, your family's fucked. Yeah, that's why I'm I'm not saying family should be above domain, because that makes sense, but... I dig. I dig it. I dig, yeah. After a 10-year education in the various aspects of samurai-ness, she was officially licensed as a samurai, a process called menkyo, and Takiko found employment with another noble family on the Itakura estate. There she worked as the lord of Niwasi's wife as her secretary and naginata instructor. She left this position when her master, Akeo... Akeka... Akauka? Akauka? Akauka. Daisuke adopted her and moved to Osaka to do some work quelling unrest in Kyoto. Isn't she like an adult at this point? Yeah, so I think it was more like like a symbolic adoption because later okay. on you'll see she goes back to her family. All right, so yeah. like a, you are one of us, come under my yeah, wing. Yeah, like you're my apprentice, Okay, come out can... I'll accept yeah. that. Yeah. By this point, the head of the Aizu domain had also been asked to take control of Kyoto and keep it out of the hands of people wishing to return the country's control to the emperor. So this was a period in Japan marked by instability after all. So let's zoom out. Zoom. Zoom, zoom. I am making hand gestures to go with these. They're very good. They're very good. They they really give the impression of zooming. Yeah. Let's talk about why there was unrest in Kyoto, starting with the non-Japanese elements. Since the Americans had very kindly and politely forced the Japanese to open their country, invaders were flooding into Japan. French, American, Dutch, and the most hated and feared of all imperial pests, the British. Oh. Along with the unequal treaties, these European powers sowed discord between the various Japanese clans. So the French were helping hold up the shogunate, assisting them with the development of a more modern European-styled navy and military. The shogun was very much in favour of allying with the French, as their then leader, Napoleon III... May he last a thousand years. Grandson of the Napoleon... Grand-nephew. Grand-nephew. There's too many Napoleons and too many Louis. Yeah, France, get your shit together. So, Napoleon III was modernising France, expanding their empire and doing some other groovy stuff. He, like his uncle, there we go, I should have just read the script ahead, was very good at fighting and taking over places he shouldn't have been, and the shogun liked the cut of his jib. So, note that down. The French ended up working on behalf of the Togawa... 
Tokugawa. Tokugawa. The French ended up working on behalf of the Tokugawa shogunate. The British saw this happening and ended up working with their old enemies, the Satsuma Domain, to help modernise the Satsuma's naval and military forces. If you want to pick an imperial power to help you fix up your navy, it's the British you want to go to. Yes. The British were pissed at the French's presence and would eventually side with the Emperor's forces in the Boshin War. This was both because of the French and because the British allies in Japan, the Satsuma, were against the shogunate. And the US was still there selling them their old Confederate submarines and benefiting from those unequal treaties set up by Chandler from friends. The US would also support the Emperor alongside the British, perhaps because they were too embarrassed to hang out with the French after leaving them high and dry during the French Revolutionary Wars. Hi, Charlotte! All of these different parties were supplying the Japanese forces on both sides with firearms, including guns, cannons and other guns. I don't know. I know more about nuclear weapons. Um, But they're not an issue in Japan until 1945. (laughs) <laughs> the Emperor's like, what? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> That's uh, to come. However, this was primarily a civil war between the various domains within Japan who split down two sides. The first side was those who wanted the Tokugawa shogunate to remain in power because it meant they would remain in power. The other side was those who wanted power returned to the Emperor, but he lost a thousand years. Maybe he lost a thousand years. And they also wanted all these barbarian devils kicked out of Japan and an end to the unequal treaties. That's a very valid yeah. may they May they not last a thousand years. May they not years. last a thousand years. They also feared the loss of Japanese culture and Japan Japan becoming westernised. The embarrassment about the unequal treaties was the biggest issue, and the presence of non-Japanese non-Ainu people on Japan was the physical reminder of this humiliation. It must be really hard when your country kowtows to the USA. I wonder what that feels like. The emperor wasn't helping either. After nearly 300 years of being a happy and quiet figurehead... Nicola, this feels very oversimplified. It is. Okay. The Emperor finally cracked the shits over all these unequal treaties and gross Americans everywhere. The Emperor was like, this is shit. This isn't fair. He began to loudly protest against the treaties and in March 1863 ordered the shogunate to expel barbarians and so prevent the westernisation of Japan. The shoguns were like, nah, nah, nah. Didn't you know we run this country? However, the Emperor's words did trigger a rash of attacks against both foreigners in Japan and against the shogunate forces themselves by those who wanted the shoguns gone and the Emperor back. It also encouraged some imperial loyalists to begin agitating for power to be returned to the emperor. The Tokugawa shogunate itself was also becoming fractured due to this treaty, and some of the domains began to misbehave. Naughty. Naughty, naughty. The main thing you need to remember here is that Nakano Takiko's family was aligned with the Eizu domain, the big guns in the shogunate's ally arsenal. During this period, Takiko was teaching samurai arts along with her master-slash-adoptive father. At one point, he was like, hey, you should marry my nephew. And she was like, "Mm, no thanks, I'm good. Incest. The unrest in Japan continued to rise across the 1860s, pushed by various foreign powers sticking their noses in where they didn't belong, as we discussed earlier. There was some light bombing by imperial powers of various Japanese domains, but these were all private spats, like the British and the Satsuma. I feel like in Britain they also have a a fruit called the Satsuma that we call something else here, because that's where it comes from. Yeah, I was thinking that earlier when you said it the first time. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's a fruit. Yeah. In 1864... It's a plum! Oh, it's just a plum. Yeah, no, it's a. I just, I remembered that. It's a oh. type of plum. It's Satsuma plum. It's called a fucking Satsuma plum then. It is a Satsuma fruit. plum. No, but it's not a separate fruit. It's not like a Satsuma. It's like a Satsuma plum. But it is, like, it's a type of plum. I know, but, like, you don't have to be so specific. Whatever. Anyway, in 1864, encouraged by the Emperor's calls for action, the forces of the Choshu domain tried to, tried to seize Kyoto from the hands of the Shogun, which was, then, which was when the head of the Eitsu domain was sent in to quash the insurrection. The rebellion was quickly put down by Eitsu and Satsuma troops. Plums. 
troops. But not before the rebels either accidentally or deliberately set Kyoto on fire. It's just not a war in Japan until someone sets fire to a city. This rebellion became known as the Kinmon Incident or the Forbidden Gate Incident. If you're wondering why the Satsuma... Who Plum. We're fighting for the Shogun. It's because the Shu were their traditional enemies. So it's already a mess of conflicts and the Boshin War hasn't officially started yet. I'm sorry, we haven't even started the war yet? No, we haven't. I'm so sorry. This was a very hard episode for me to write. The Shogun was like, thanks to the Aitsu and Satsuma troops and no thanks to the rebelling Choshu. And the following year in September, the leaders of the rebellion were captured and executed with minimal bloodshed. Minimal bloodshed to the other people of the Choshu, not the rebel leaders themselves. But the Choshu weren't done yet. They really wanted to expel those foreign devils, and so in 1863 and 1864, they launched some naval attacks on the imperial forces in the Shimonoseke Straits, trying to wrest control back from the Americans, the Brits, the French, and the Dutch. The Dutch. Wave to the Dutch East India Company as they sail by. Bye! Now, obviously, um, it was one Japanese domain going up against the four great imperial powers of the 19th century. Fuck the Portuguese. Sorry, Germany, it's not your turn yet. I mean, maybe don't apologise to the German Empire, considering... Oh, yeah, I better cut that yeah. bit out. All right. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the Chonchu tried to fight the four largest navies in the world and lost, unsurprisingly, and the imperial forces stomped them into the ground and forced them to sign really unfair punitive treaties that involved tariffs being lowered and about three million US dollars being taken from the Japanese. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. So um, then it was the Shogun's turn to be like, did I fucking say you could do that? Only in Japanese. No. And again, the leaders of this rebellion were beheaded, which is like, at least it's quick. Um, but the Shogun wasn't done. They were like, look, we beheaded you. You shot at the British who get very upset at this sort of thing. You've been very rude. We're not fans of this. We're going to stomp you into the fucking ground. Only in Japanese. The Shogun forces primarily made up of those from the Asia domain, but with a nice pick and mix from the rest of the Shogunate domain allies, marched into the Chonshu region. However, the Chonshu had learnt from their previous mistakes and modernised their army along a blend of Japanese and European lines, and they stomped the Shogunate forces into the ground. It's a bit like my phrase of the week. I just really enjoy I stomped you into the fucking ground. It's a good phrase. It's great. Yeah, I wish I had cause to use it on more basis, but I don't yeah. tend to stomp people. I'm just I'm quite aggressive in the way I talk sometimes. That's fair. This was helped by how some of the Shogunate forces had looked at the treatment of the Chonshu by the European imperial powers and weren't really feeling like attacking their countrymen. Indeed, it was this point where the Satsuma swapped sides and allied with the Chonshu to support the Emperor's restoration. Many other domains under the control of the Shogun also half-assed their attacks, so the Shogun lost. Which was embarrassing, which led to further domains going, hey, maybe we should, like, support the Emperor? Or only in Japanese. Yes. So this defeat was also what triggered the Shogun into going up to the French and being like, hey, do you know Napoleon III? Can we, like, get some tips? Um, and some tips they got. In 1867, the French rocked up to Japan and launched their military training mission because, counter to popular belief for most of modern history, the French have actually done relatively well in most wars. They controlled a fat-ass chunk of Europe for ages. They technically held their own in World War One, and very few countries without a wide stretch of water between them and Germany were able to hold off the Nazis in World War Two. Like, if you look at the scuttling of the French fleet in Toulon... That oh, my God, together, okay. Like, We're never leaving this recording studio, are we? No. Please, please stop. Okay. I, I need to leave at some point. It's just really... All right. Yeah. Okay. So in addition to taking on French military equipment and French tactics, the Shogunate also adopted a French style of dress at court. This wasn't popular with those who feared the westernisation of Japan, funnily enough. In addition, the Shogun stepped up production of western-style ships and artillery. And then... If you fucking talk about boats... Okay. 
And then in late 1866, both the shogun and the emperor died. This is a fun line to be um, laughing through. And so this is why I didn't, like, tell them anyone's names until now, because it's like they don't actually matter. (laughs) So the new names are, they were replaced by, respectively, Tokugawa Yoshinobu and Emperor Meiji. Pin those names. In 1867. Pin, Pin number three. Pin number three. Pin number three. In 1867, the Satsuma and the Chonshu were like, all right, let's do this. And they put out an order in the name of the emperor to slaughter the shogun and take over the shogun strongholds in the north of Japan, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Like, they're pushing for the return of imperial authority to the emperor and just sending out messages in the name of the emperor as they wish. Whereas the shogun's the one acting like the emperor. And they're like, <laughs> that guy sucks. Um, so they were, yeah. So then the shogun was like, Okay, you got me. I'll step down. I'm super chill. And some people were like, some people, historians believe he really meant it. And others are like, he just said that so he could then gather support and overthrow the new emperor, who was 15, by the way. And I think the latter group have a stronger argument because a few weeks after stepping down, the former shogun was like, hang on, fuck this. I'm going to attack and retake Kyoto. And then presumably he wanted to retake the rest of Japan. That does seem like a more compelling yeah. argument to I me. I think he really meant to retire like, for like two a, weeks. This is such a John Farnham retirement. <laughs> My PE teacher in primary school retired like three times Aww. and we kept having a party for him and then he'd come back he like six cake. months later. He just liked cake. Or it was during Kenneth's era, so they probably just couldn't find another fucking teacher. <laughs> The Boshin War truly started in January 1868, with the Shogun's forces attacking the Satsuma Choshu Imperial Restoration Alliance forces. Please applaud the fact that I just... That was really actually Thank really you. Nice. Thank you. We're going to call them the Imperial Restoration Force, or just the Imperial Forces. I just really like saying Imperial. Though there were more people fighting for the Shogun, the Restoration Force had the might of the European Empire sending them shed loads of modern weaponry, including Gatling guns. Which are like early machine guns. Which you can't fight against with a katana. Nope. Some in the Shogun's court began to see how well the Restoration Forces were doing, so they deserted the Shogun and joined the Emperor. And then the Shogun, with his feelings hurt, ran off onto a battleship. Restoration forces won the battle, and then there was a naval battle between Shogun forces and Satsuma naval forces, who had been engaging with the British for useful tips and tricks, but that didn't work, and the Shogun forces won that naval battle. A group of foreign ministers did hang out, and then they declared the Shogun was still the legitimate leader of Japan. But then the Emperor's forces dropped by the foreign ministers' offices, or wherever they were, and told them to recognise the Emperor as the legitimate ruler of Japan. And they asked them very, very nicely and very, very politely. And the foreign diplomats were like, yeah, okay, we recognise the Emperor of Japan as a legitimate ruler. Sorry about those treaties. Well, this didn't stop the violence. In fact, it ang- in fact, angered at the role of the French in ending the shogunate. A group of samurai attacked and killed 11 French sailors in March 1868. They were just doing their job. Like, they in were the just Navy. there. Come on, you can sail the, the seven seas in the nude. Yeah, they were just there. Like, don't attack them. Anyway, later that month, they also killed the British ambassador in the middle of Kyoto. Oh, I sailed that. Kill kill him. He had, like, some power involved in this. The French sailors didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) So even though no one was recognising the shogun as legitimate by this point, except his allies, he was like, rigged election, stop the count. (laughs) And um, his forces continued to move. They were being pushed north by the imperial forces and being eventually pushed back to their last stronghold of Edo. They knew the ground of Edo. They could defend it there. Edo, by the way, no longer exists. Spoilers. They could not defend it. After imperial forces, imperial forces surrounded Edo in May 1868, the shogun's army minister negotiated a surrender. Whoops. And then the shogun surrendered and rescinded or was stripped of his titles and all his shit. Also, side note, the shogun's navy commander also refused to surrender and just sort of potted around with the ships he could keep, along with some Frenchmen who had resigned from the French army so they could help the rebels. 
They're the Frenchmen that were like, you killed my friends. Probably not. Probably not. They were like officers. Yeah. Okay. So apart from them, most of Japan, barring some holdouts in and around where the Aizu domain was, accepted the emperor's rule and everything calmed down for like a hot five. Many clans in the north, most notably the Aizu domain, rallied their allies and forces for a counterattack to dethrone the emperor and restore the shogun. Even by this point, he was like, even though by this point he was like, I'm kind of like, I'm having a self-care day, guys. I'm going to have a bath. I might retire permanently, get my nails done. <laughs> like, hashtag girl boss self-care. Oh, God, kill me. By May 1868, some of the anti-emperor pro-shogun forces were again attacking imperial outposts and forces and it, were again attacking imperial outposts and forces and trying to defend their regions from imperial encroachment. Imperial forces kept pushing north until they reached the Aizu domain in October 1868, and it was here Nakano Takeko and her band of samurai warriors would either meet their glory or just die horribly. Depends where you stand. Spoilers. Though the Aizu domain usually kept quite a large standing army, their numbers had been depleted by the fighting in Kyoto and holding back imperial forces as they pressed northwards. In October 1868, the Aizu were besieged in their main castle, Crane Castle. The Aizu probably had around 7,000 individuals all up who were able to fight, some of whom were well-trained samurai, who were both like well-trained in the old style and the modern military style. Others included older samurai, teenage trainees, and peasants. So they had 7,000. Um, unfortunately, the imperial forces at this point had 70,000 troops. Slight difference. So literally 10 times the amount the Aizu did. So it's no wonder that by the 18th of October, the 1868, the bells rang out, which was a signal for people to take shelter in Crane Castle, save from the Imperial Ground Troops. So, under normal circumstances, this wouldn't be such a bad idea. Crane Castle was very strong and in good condition for a Japanese castle under traditional Japanese wartime circumstances. Unfortunately, however, in this case, it was not in good nick for facing modern artillery barrages, which the Imperial forces happily rained down on the city, the artillery having been supplied by their European allies. With the invaders surrounding the castle and the domain about to fall, there were three choices for the people of the Aizu domain. Fight, surrender, or flee. There were four. What's the fourth? Well, it comes under fleeing, as in fleeing the mortal coil. Oh. Uh, there were mass suicides by some houses within Crane Castle. But don't think of this as an act of cowardice or of them being terrified of like losing their honour. Some people, mostly women and the elderly, chose to commit suicide to preserve rations for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, they were also very aware Japan was not yet a signatory to the Geneva Convention. And so the invading soldiers would not exactly be friendly when they came across women, children, or surrendering prisoners. Um, these weren't all cases of seppuku, which is only committed by samurai. Um, some people were willingly or unwillingly killed by their relatives to preserve family honour and protect them from the westernisation of Japan. Some men and women also chose to commit suicide by combat, taking up arms even if their training was limited, fighting to the death. Yikes. Yeah, so there's a lot yep. more information about what was going on in Crane Castle, but we're going to leave that for my new podcast, Nicola's History of Suicide. On brand for you. Um, <laughs> Kelvin! <laughs> But there was also a bunch of young samurai sent out to fight at one point. This gets really dark. And so some of them, one of, a unit of them saw some smoke coming from the town outside the castle. But they thought the smoke was coming from the castle itself. So they're like, the castle's fallen. Oh, no, we should kill ourselves. Oh God. So they all killed themselves. Oh, God. And, um, but one of them fucked it up really badly and didn't actually kill himself. I don't know how you fucked that up. Um, so like, peasant... stabbed himself in the shoulder. Yeah, like, I missed! Just went under his arm. <laughs> um, but a peasant actually found him and nursed him back to health so he could actually tell people what had happened. Um, and he actually survived until the 1930s. And he was like, oh, lol, the castle hadn't fallen yet. Whoops. Oh, my God. <laughs> So what was the smoke coming from? The town. The town. So it's like it's like the same as like a European, like there's a castle in the middle, there's yep. a town, there's a wall, and there's more towns outside it. Mm-hmm. I should have explained that earlier, sorry. The poor people outside the wall. So there were four options, fight, surrender, flee, or commit suicide. 
Under the pressure and terror of the invasion, on October 8th, the Joshi Gun formed. This was a platoon of random women from various families in the Azu domain, all of whom had undergone samurai training. So remember how it was very common, especially for the Azu, to train women as onobugeisha? Probably up to 30 women took part in this unit, but we only know the names of 10. The commander was Nakano Takiko's mother, Koko, with Takiko and her other daughter, Masako, serving under her. The other known women are Hirata Kocho, Jimbo Yukiko, Yukiko. Okamura Sukiko, Okada Rinko, Suwako Chiko, and Yoda Makiko and Kikuko. Kikuko. I actually didn't mean to give you all those names. It's just how it like, read out in the script. That's fine. So. Some of these women may have joined for loyalty and the chance to protect their domain. Others, like Okamura Sukiko, may have been on suicide missions. Her husband and her children were already dead by the time the Joshigan were formed. So, though Nakano Koko was the commander, this was more of a nominal position, and Takeko was the one in charge. The Joshigan was fairly autonomous, once it had gotten its autonomy, partially because the women involved were respected and very well educated, and partially because, hey, they they know their chances aren't good. Like, shit's fucked. Shit's fucked. Yeah. Like, you've been besieged for a month. It's not looking good. Women had already taken part in hand-to-hand combat in early October 1868, facing down imperial forces as they invaded towns further out in the Azu region. Though the Azu did have some of the best trained Onobugeisha around, your swords can only do so much against rifle fire. Unless you're Wonder Woman, I suppose, like when you can aim. The women of the Joshigan cut their hair in samurai style and went out to do battle in men's clothes. To some of the combatants, they looked more like teenage boys than young or middle-aged women. The first action of the Joshigan in the month-long siege was one of rescue. They heard that Lady Turahim, an important woman to Crane Castle, had been evacuated to a base nearly 12 kilometres away from the castle. They decided to go to her aid. They walked through snow, sleet and enemy fire to find her. They did not, because it turns out she was still in Crane Castle. Whoops. Also, if she's been evacuated, why would you go bring her back? That's... I think they thought she was wounded and wanted to bring her back in. She was like she was like uh... one of the, like, the highest ranking yeah. women, so they wanted to have her back in like to know where she was so she could help. And okay. she could, like, yeah. instruct people right. on what to do. Either way, didn't work because she was still in Crank And they hadn't invented texting yet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very hard to fight a war when you can't text. Yeah. So now here, Takeko does something that sort of points out how important honour and protocol were to the Shamurai the and the Shogunate. May it last a thousand years. She was like, cool, we better go get a commander's permission to fight. Aww. So off she goes with a little delegation of warrior women, some of whom had just killed members of their own family to save their honour, <laughs> by the way, and meets up with one commander. And she's like, hey, bro, can we join your forces? And he's like, no, thank you. If the invaders see women are fighting for us, they'll take it as a sign we're getting desperate. And I like to imagine that in the background of this, a massive cannonball like takes the top off Craig Castle. Like, they'll see we're getting desperate. And I know we're in Japan with Japanese forces, but I imagine like this really like, officer british military officer kind of person uh, like women with the mustache women? like <laughs> we don't need women's help yeah and then another cannonball comes through he's like mustache waves in the cannonball wind <laughs> well Takiko was like this is bullshit and then threatened to commit suicide if they weren't allowed to take part so the commander made them a deal some other shogun soldiers were coming and so could they please go with them and back to the castle and sort something out on the way back to the castle with these new soldiers the following day, Takiko and the Joshigan asked the commander with them if he would please let them join the battle. Pretty, pretty, please. So this guy, Furiatsukazemon. Well done. Thank you. Presumably looking at Crane Castle being bombarded and on fire, is like, sure, why the fuck not? He named the Joshigan as a separate squad. Yeah. 
So I believe we said the majority of women in the Joshua Gun were middle-aged. Takeko herself actually was only 21. A baby. And her sister Masako, who was also there, was only 16 years old. A baby, old. baby. Overnight, um, Takeko and Koko, her mum, discussed their options for Masako. Should they hide her with a local family to ensure her survival? She was just a kid after all. Masako broke up during the conversation and was like, um, I disagree, I am staying to fight with you guys. So they eventually realised that what the enemy might do to Masako if they left her alone with some random family was probably a greater danger. Mm. And so Masako was allowed to stay with the Joshigan. So the following morning, the Joshigan awoke to hear some grave news. Imperial forces had managed to set up on a bridge directly between the Azu forces in the area and Crane Castle, and those troops had rifles. This was about five kilometres from where the Joshigan was staying, a place called Takaku. The Joshigan were deployed to the front along with a group of male samurai and some volunteer peasants. There were no illusions about their chances in this battle. Remember, there had been about ten times the amount of Imperial troops to the pro-Shogun Azu troops. But despite only having bladed weapons, the Joshigun charged into the line of fire. As we said earlier, a lot of the Joshigun women had cut their hair off and were dressed like men. This meant it took the enemy a hot minute to realise they were fighting women and those women were killing them. When they realised this, um, some of them shouted out the women should be taken alive. Uh, Nakano Takeko then turned it up and slaughtered five or six of the enemy with her naganata. Nice. She cut such a figure of ferocity that it was later said that she gave off, quote, an intense male spirit, end quote. Less noise. Yep. So the enemy men who'd said, don't kill the women warriors, changed their mind, funnily enough, and Takeko was shot through the head or the chest. We're not exactly sure. The battle continued to rage on for another 20 or so minutes, and the surviving Joshigan were forced to retreat with the rest of the troops. But not soon enough. Casualties had been high. Masako, Takiko's sister, had survived, but Takiko had not. Indeed, Masako had decapitated her following Takiko being killed by gunshot, and they carried her head back to their original base. Once in a safe place, they performed death rites over Takiko's head and donated her weapons to the temple. A few days later, the Joshigun managed to return to Crane Castle, where they found the living conditions had really deteriorated. Despite this, they kept up defence of the castle with the other women, and the siege lasted another 30 days. Imperial bombardment of the castle increased and supplies ran short. At one point, a woman left the castle to get vegetables to feed the wounded when she was accosted by an enemy soldier, and she stabbed him to death. The woman was 60 years old, and she made it back to the castle. But did she get the vegetables? Tragically, this is another case of archival silence. It has not been written down. We don't know. That's but I like to think so. Like, I got radishes! She's like dripping blood. Just covered in blood. But like, I got the food! Yeah. Nan, go sit down. <laughs> the ensuing weeks of the siege were desperate for the Aizu. We have not covered siege warfare in detail yet, and we're not going to do it here either. But every warm body was pressed into service, as medical staff, lookouts, warriors and guards. Some women took it upon themselves to dump bags of rice or sand on unexploded cannonballs, as to dampen the inevitable explosion. Ammunition became so scarce that elderly women were under orders to collect used enemy bullets to give to the sharpshooting division, which was made up of men and women, including some who had been in the Joshigan. And as you know, it was all for nothing. On October 26th, Imperial forces breached the outer walls of the city and set it on fire. On October 30th, Imperial artillery bombarded the castle for 72 straight hours, during which some of the Aizu women still refused to leave their posts as lookouts or sharpshooters. It was November 5th by the time the head of the Aizu, Matsudaira Katamori, ordered a surrender. After 300 years, the reign of the shogunate was finally over and Emperor Meiji ruled across Japan. Edo would be renamed Tokyo and became the new capital. Emperor Meiji's policies of westernization and modernization were quick to make changes. He abolished the samurai class and Japan developed a new western-style army and political system. This would lead to Japan becoming the first Asian nation to defeat an European imperial power in the Russo-Japanese War of, 18, of 1905. 
And as we all know, Japan will later become a fearsome world power and also be the origin place of Pokemon. Honestly, I'm impressed that you only put Pokemon in a couple of times. Yeah, it's almost like you can like cut down on the references to pop culture. Even when there's a famous artifact from that like time or place. I have no idea what you're talking about. One of the most famous survivors of the siege was Yamakawa Sakuko, who had been nine at the time of the conflict. At the age of 12, she was selected by the Meiji government to go to America to learn a kind of knowledge that the Meiji felt was missing from Japan. She was to become a model of a modern Meiji woman. Sakuko would eventually become the first Japanese person to be certified in nursing in the United States. And then she returns to Japan. Yeah. Um, Rejected Princesses did do a great piece on her, and so we'll link that in the doobly-doo. It's not known what happened to all the women of the Joshigun. Some survived, some died, and some thrived. One woman even divorced her husband after the surrender and moved to Kyoto with a hot new guy. Good for her. But it is Nakano Takeko who remained in a lot of people's imaginations as the young leader of a group of fierce warrior women in a time where there was little other option than to fight or stabbing yourself in the guts. And she has since joined the rank of, like, warrior Japanese samurai warrior women who live on in their cultural imagination. Yeah. Yeah. There is a yearly ceremony in memory of Takeko and the Joshigun, and her and other Onobogeisha's memory is seen in some of the fiercely loyal and capable warrior women in, the, in some anime and manga. Further, you can play Total War Shogun 2, colon, The Fall of the Samurai, which does involve the Azu clan and does have some kind of set of female warriors. But as far as I can tell, there is no naming of specific female samurai. And that is the story of the Boshin War and the female samurai at the end of their time. It's a good story. Thank it's not you. a good story because it doesn't end happily, but it's a good story. It's a good story. It's not a nice story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I think this is a good example of how she's become so much bigger after her death. Yeah. Like she, she was really there. She didn't do much, but it's like, I was reading the script and I was like, why are we even talking about her? She yeah. like was there for like 20 minutes, but it's like that kind of reputation impact after death yeah. and how she's been remembered. Yeah, I think it's also like the one of the reasons it took me so long to research and write this one is because every new thing I found, it'd be like another woman who was named and had like a record going on, but it's still Nakano Takeko who's remembered from this battle. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think she's really impressive. She's um, impressive. She embodies the samurai like spirit. I don't yeah. fully agree with it. But um, big fan of living to fight another day. But yes, um, always, always a good thing. But she like, that's culturally important yeah. for samurai, and that makes sense. Yeah. And and she, yeah, she did what she believed in. Which was getting fucking decapitated by her sister. Alice, please don't. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that is actually our last episode for this, what we've called a season. Season uh, one season is done. High five. Dunzel um, Washington. Dunzel Washington. So um, we will be coming back in the week of Anzac Day because that's the best day to come back if you're uh, talking about women in war and where they've been, like, misrepresented or completely ignored because i feel like i just i have a sneaking suspicion that there might be a little bit less in the anzac day lead up about women than men just a tiny little bit a little bit shockingly small amount so strange um so thank you everybody who's been listening to the podcast and we love each and every one of you saying nice things especially that one person from like brazil i like you i don't know why you're listening to us but i like you a lot yeah um Thank you for all the wonderful support and the listening and the talking and the feedback. And the keep keep listening, keep talking, keep talking to us. We like to hear what you like. Shut up, phone. <laughs> I'm leaving that in there. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Um, we have things that we said at the start, but we're not going to say them again. Um, Socials. Newsletter. Socials, newsletter. We- website. Pay the rent. I nearly said newspaper. We don't have a newspaper. I'm oh, sorry, guys. What's a newspaper? In the olden days. Yeah. Anyway. It's what my guinea pigs poop on, actually. Oh, gosh. <laughs> 
<laughs> on that note. On that note. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in season two. Bye. Bye.